Hey, I'm Chris Rubens, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. Backcountry skiing is such an interesting sport. By the time you get feedback, you've gone too far. It's a sketchy snow back up, but it's a totally different ball game. So your your fear is one, it's real, and and two, it's very humbling. So. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Wes Gregg. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control, safety through innovation, with additional sustaining support from Gordini. We keep you outside longer. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination of avalanches. Additional support for today's episode is provided by Six Point Engineering. Based in Nelson, British Columbia, Greg Johnston and his team merge the disciplines of avalanche risk management, structural, and geotechnical engineering. Find out more, explore past projects, and get in touch at sixpointenge.com. That's six, like the number, pointenge.com. Back in September, I finally made some time to have a chat with ski legend, Avalanche Canada ambassador, farmer, and father, Chris Rubens. Chris has been a globally recognized professional skier for the past two decades. Truly dedicated to the mountains, and passionate about moving in them, Chris chooses to spend the majority of his time self-propelled in the backcountry, seeking beautiful lines to showcase the world via film, photo, and social media. Over the course of his career, he has perfected the skill of delivering high-quality content that resonates with viewers all around the world. These days, he strives to inspire his audience to take action, living and playing with less impact on the climate. I'm excited to share this conversation I had with Chris, but first, here's Caleb with a word from one of our supporters. Support for this episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast comes from Beacon Guidebooks. Beacon has a library of 16 ski atlas guidebooks and 18 backcountry ski topo maps across five states, and they're growing. Beacon recently released the second edition of their popular field guide for avalanche search and rescue. What if the worst case scenario happens to you? The reality is, is that most of us cannot remember everything from all the classes and clinics we've attended. So this book is meant to help you be a valuable member of the team, whether you're a pro on a large scale rescue or a regular old skier in a group of three. The author, Alexis Alloway, has done the heavy lifting to provide an easy to read and highly curated quick reference tool that includes leadership and risk management reviews, search strategies, probing and shoveling methods, medical protocols, patient packaging and rating diagrams, quick reference cards, and much, much more. This season, you can go to beaconguidebooks.com to take advantage of 25% off of orders of six or more copies for your patrol, rescue team, or guiding team. Enter the code AVSAR, that's A-V-S-A-R, to take advantage of their team discount for a book that is built to last. You can also reach out to them personally at orders at beaconguidebooks.com. If you want to hear a little bit more about this book, you can go back and listen to our episode with Alexis 
on episode 6.2. Thanks, Caleb. Without further delay, here's my conversation with Chris Ruins. Ah, good morning, Chris. Morning. How's it going, Wes? Good, man. How are you doing? Doing uh, pretty awesome. It's feeling, starting to feel like fall, and uh, that gets me dreaming about winter. Yeah, I hear you. Nice, cool, crisp mornings up here in the Caribou as well. Nice, awesome. So, whereabouts are you located these days? Uh, I'm in Revelstoke, uh, British Columbia. I've been here, I guess, almost 20 years now, which is crazy to think about. And uh, yeah, run a little organic veggie farm in the summer and uh, still doing the professional skiing thing in the winter, which is pretty wild too. Living the dream, living the dream right on. Okay, so we already know who you are, obviously, and we know you're a professional skier. But what else is it that you do throughout the season, Chris? <laughs> what else is it that I do? Um, I mean, I've been a professional skier for a very long time, um, over 20 years now. Um, and so the majority, I mean, it's changed in the 20 years that we've, we've been there. And so it, it started as you would go out and basically film your entire season for one project. Um, and the just behind that is that you're out there almost every day um, filming for that one project, but real, reality comes down to the fact that you only, by the time the project ends, it's only like two or three days of the perfect days where you get the majority of the footage. Um, that's kind of changed over the years, whereas we work on a lot of different projects now. Um, so the you'll see a lot more gray bird footage where back in the day, it was like, just like the perfect bluebird days. That's it. Um, so pretty early on in my career, I made it a bit of a priority to help work with uh, the Avalanche Association about bringing to light the fact that when you see these movies, you're seeing the best of the best. Um, but what you're not seeing is all the days we go out there and, not fail, but we're not like getting the A grade shots. Like we're extreme skiers and everyone kind of thought we were these crazy lunatics going out there that had a, a death defying wish or whatever. Um, but it, it's so far from the truth. You know, I mean, we, we definitely are pushing the limits and um, there's danger involved, but you don't stick around for very long. If, if that's how you look at it, it's a very calculated uh, approach. And so I, I've always, really tried to to help showcase that um through doing presentations or um these days through social media and etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah and i think that's a big part of of one of the reasons why i wanted to talk to you because i think it is important and, and being somebody that came from ontario uh and came from a freestyle background that was the exact attitude i had when i came out west was i'm gonna go hit these lines i know i'm rad I'm going to go be rad. And then, you know, I had a few pretty humbling experiences when I first came out and a few pals being like, hey man, this ain't a terrain park. <laughs> We're out here deep house and, and uh, you wreck yourself, then uh, things are going to get serious. And, and I really respected the fact that when we started to see professionals like yourself um, really bring to the forefront that, you know, you guys aren't just a bunch of cowboys out there. Everything that you guys are doing is is very calculated and very you know, and it takes a lot of time and patience, and and it's something that uh, 
that we want to continue to bring to the forefront for these new, younger, and up-and-coming athletes to understand that. So let's talk about, like, where did you grow up? What got you into skiing? And what then, like, pushed you away and into the, at the time of of our generation, the non-norm of, quote-unquote, extreme skiing or freestyle skiing? Yeah, so uh, I grew up in the Rockies, which is... Um, I mean, I attribute a huge amount of my mountain learning, um, and humbleness from the Rockies because you just, you know, if you, if you grew up on the coast, uh, no offense, but it's just, it's an e- easier snowpack, you know, like 24 hours after a storm, you're, you're, you're pretty good. Like it's not perfect, but in the Rockies, it feels like literally anytime you can get in an avalanche. So um it it humbles you quickly but uh yeah i grew up in calgary um my parents were outdoor enthusiasts so we were out in the outdoors every weekend and that kind of gave me the the love um and awe of the outdoors and the mountains and um we grew up skiing at sunshine and um i'm fortunate enough that when i grew up we grew up on straight skinny skis um we didn't know about powder like powder skis or they didn't sorry they didn't exist Um, and so it was just a totally different way, you know, moguls were cool. Um, powder was super fun, but you know, you had to know how to ski. And then, um, as I graduated high school, uh, I was friends with the Horlifsons. Um, and at the time, Eric Hoji, um, was like a, a budding professional skier and, um, I didn't totally have huge dreams or aspirations of becoming a professional skier. It, it, it kind of seemed unattainable to me. I was a ski racer at the time, but I joined the Rocky Mountain Freeriders with Kevin Gertis and Guy Mowbray and, uh, saw Eric and his success and was kind of like, wow, this is cool. And was hanging out with him and we were building jumps and, um, took our first avalanche course through the Rocky Mountain Freerider. Um, and in that we were skiing at Lake Louise and, and the patrollers were just, they're so friendly. And so we were there every weekend and you could easily go up and talk to them. And so as we were starting to like venture into the backcountry at, at the time, it was mainly just to build booters. Um, but it was really easy to go up and talk to them and like ask them about how the conditions were and what they thought about it. And they were really approachable. And I would say, I, I don't have like, much formal education when it comes to um, avalanche uh, education, but a lot of it comes just from mentors and peers and talking to the ski patrollers. And then later on, it was guides. And, um, and that was largely through pro- professional skiing. You know, we were um, getting invited on these trips to go cat skiing or heli skiing or just skiing in the background or the surrounding slack country with patrol. And every time we'd meet up with those people, we just like pepper them for information of like, well, what do you think about this? Like, how do you think about that? And, um, you know, that being said, I guess the unfortunate or however you want to look at avalanche education is a huge amount of its experience and, and looking at the bulletin and going out and, and testing the waters. And, you know, when we were young, I remember touring up, some super tight trees in the Rockies. Cause you're like, well, I'm a hundred percent sure there's not going to be an avalanche here, you know, um, you know, you know, stuff like that. And then 
yeah, as you go on, there's like a few close calls and incidents and, and, uh, I guess we all felt like our kind of group felt that it was really important to share those, um, incidents with people and, and not pretend like they didn't happen. And hopefully that, uh, people could learn from our mistakes as well. Cause, uh, it's, you know, in the, in the era of today when you can Google how to do a sport and look on YouTube and, and accelerate your, your learning curve, you know, um, backcountry skiing is just not that, yeah. um, the, there is no accelerated, um, version of it. The, the only acceleration is experience and slowly over time you gain knowledge and, um, it, it takes a really long time. I, I mean, still, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, 20 plus years in the backcountry now, and I still feel like I'm learning at a crazy rate. It's, you know, every time you go out there, it's, you get surprised and yeah, for, for better and for worse. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's funny, you know, I've been doing a lot of reflecting on, on a lot of that same, same type of thing, you know, like you, you don't know what you don't know. And, um, you know, I, I, uh, I always equate traveling in the backcountry. I spent uh, 10 years as a lineman and, um, in those 10 years, you know, near the end of my career in that, in that field, I always felt that, you know, there wasn't a week that went by where, you know, we did something that we had done before and you're like, Oh, wow. Well, I didn't expect that to happen. Right. And, and, and I find the backcountry is, is very similar. You know, uh, quite often we we don't get we don't get feedback when we get it right. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know it, it's, it's backcountry skiing is such an interesting sport because you by the time you get feedback, you're you've gone too far. Um, exactly. But you you had you never know when you skied something, you know, and and it, it didn't avalanche, and you're like, wow, I nailed it! Like, but you have no idea if you'd skied like three feet to the the right or something like that um if you just set off the whole slope and, and there and uh i do think that as better skiers or like as more knowledgeable backcountry skiers there is a bit of intuition when you're skiing you know like if you're going over a convexity you you're light on your feet and you stick away from rocks these like kind of intuitive things over time or I shouldn't say they're intuitive because you've learned them over time, but when you're in the moment, they are, they are kind of this intuition that you, you do without thinking. Um, but that can make the difference, you know, and, and those are very, very small differences with potentially huge consequences on, on the other side. So yeah, it's a, it's a challenging sport, but that, I mean, to me, I think, you know, I often say this, if you, if you knew a hundred percent that the slope wasn't going to slide and, and for sure there are incidents like, you know, when you're skiing boilerplate or melt freeze or something like that, you're like, this is definitely not going to f- slide, but it, a lot of the time it's not as fun. Um, you know, I, I, that's the irony of it is, is it can completely ruin your day, your life, everything, but that is the, the, the fun because it, it never the learning never ends and you're always like piecing together the the puzzle 
Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like just sort of, you know, it's like my, my five-year-old just at this point, he's it's currently testing the boundaries all the time. Right. And I, I, and I think, you know, backcountry skiing is very similar, right. You know, like as we progress through as a child of backcountry skiing, we're, you know, some of us with our wish tolerances certain higher than others and, and we're pushing those boundaries. And, um, you know, unfortunately, sometimes we push them a little bit too far and, and things don't work out, but yeah, I, I, you know, I never really thought of those intuitive movements that those of us that have years of experience skiing, even outside of the backcountry, that those intuitive muscle memory movements in our feet and in our skiing style that we do subconsciously, you know, to try to be lighter on our feet or try to, you know, it's funny. I never really thought of it that way. Cause I definitely, you know, early season, right. When those sharks are down there, you don't really want to be dinging your skis, you're skiing light. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, a hundred percent. And, and it's, um, I mean, it's been interesting for me. Like I, I had a really solid group of friends from the Rockies, uh, like Kevin Yurtis, Colin Paskus, uh, Eric Corlison, Marty Schaefer. And we all came, I mean, Marty and Kevin end up going into ski patrolling and then guiding. Um, but like Eric and myself, we were very uneducated formally, like I was saying, but, um, we did, you know, now that I've been around guides so much, been involved in, in the, the guiding side of things and, and seeing, you know, all the communication that gets done with the morning meetings and um, the communication is, is we were doing all that stuff um, just naturally, you know, we're, we're communicating all the time. And, um, you know, when you're touring up during the day, uh, you're, you're, you know, bullshitting about this and that and what's going on at home and and that sort of thing and then all of a sudden somebody like oh check out that slab over there and it would just be like a very casual conversation but we were always like observing and and putting the pieces of the puzzle together and it was a very natural thing for us um that that to some degree i guess we took for granted we were just we were just like oh this is how you this is how you do it and then um after doing some more avalanche education you're like oh this is yeah we're doing the right thing yeah, we were doing yeah. it right we had no idea yeah. we were just trying to survive really <laughs> yeah yeah totally and, and and going back to the rockies it was just a i mean it it was a it's a sketchy snowpack out there it's a totally different ball game so your your uh your fear is one it's real and and two it's very humbling so um to to get success in those mountains was a real challenge Mm-hmm. Um, it, with success being like getting onto steeper, gnarlier lines, um, and, and surviving them. So it was, you know, we always, uh, I guess a lot of the times we, we failed so much, you know, especially in the early years, cause you, you just, yeah, you, you really wouldn't push it. And, um, it was kind of, I guess we didn't really feel successful in that sense. Right. Um, but we, you know, all of a sudden, I, I mean, that was a big learnable for me. It was it, it, a lot of the times during the season, you're like, oh, I didn't get on that line that I wanted to or whatever. And then, but after 10 years, you started to look back and you're like, wow, you know, I've skied some stuff. Like, this is pretty cool. Um, and, and it just kind of adds up slowly. And, and that's kind of always been our approach. Oh, that's a great approach to have. Did you guys ever find, like when you guys were all skiing together, how did you guys all manage 
humility and ego as you came up. Did you guys ever run into challenges in that sense? And how did you guys manage those challenges? I mean, I mean that that group of friends from the Rockies are the most humble, least ego driven people I've ever met. So there was never, uh, <laughs> it was never. It just wasn't an issue, you know. It was. Um, That's amazing. I mean, those you know the classic examples when you go out for lunch or something with with your buddies and everyone's scrambling to pay for the other guy or whatever. <laughs> That that's that's the group of friends, you know. Yeah, like you could actually make money go, by going out for dinner, for lunch with your friends. They're pretty pretty funny group of individuals. But yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I mean. That being said, I don't know if it's ego, but there was definitely drive to go ski, um, gnarly stuff, and so turning around was not hard because the decisions were pretty obvious um in, in that sense and then but then you know you kind of beat yourself up afterwards um a little bit about uh like maybe we could have just done it or whatever but it it always felt in the moment that it was a very like easy decision like, okay this is not happening you know so yeah. 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 No, perfect. That's kind of exactly what I was thinking. You know, like when you get into those situations, when you're trying to push to achieve an, an objective and you, you know, you make a collective decision, but I do know that once you make that collective decision, you're quite often as a human, you come back down and you're like, ah, could have we done it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so like, I would say that was like the early years of getting into it, you know, was that. And then there was a, a stretch there where I felt like at least myself started like pushing it a bit more and, you know, speed some lines where it was like a, a little bit more on the edge than I was used to. And the thing that I realized quite quickly was it just didn't feel good afterwards. I didn't have that same like satisfaction. It was kind of like, felt like you got away with it or yeah, just you're on edge the whole time. Cause you're like just squeaking away with it. Whereas like, the day is when you ski something like super gnarly, but it's perfect. It, it almost feels easy. Like it, it, it really does. It, it doesn't like you're like, well, that wasn't that hard or whatever, but you kind of, the part you have to realize is that you've waited this long for the conditions to be absolutely perfect. And then your, your, your fear is a different sort of fear. Like your you, stuff can still go wrong for sure, but you're probably scared of what you're skiing, not, the actual conditions that you're skiing in, which is a, a good sort of fear. Yeah, exactly. Like a different dopamine hit that that most of us are after, right? That that are in these sports, right? And really, that for me, I know that that's what it is. As somebody that that just loves that dopamine hit, however I can get it. Um, some are healthier than others, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's. It, I just find it so fascinating. I, I do. I really do. And now, um, over the years, like coming from the Rockies, you know, you've got the mountains right there, super close to you. And then as you progress through and we start to need to utilize motorized devices to get to where we go, what, what is it? How is your transition from being a pro skier and dealing with avalanche terrain, moving into now having to run a snowmobile and also having to deal with avalanche terrain on the snowmobile from a skier's perspective, like how did you find that transition and how are you finding the meshing between utilizing both of those tools? Yeah. I mean, when we first got into snowmobiling, it was really easy to 
not get into avalanche training because you just got stuck all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it was utilizing your back muscles. Um, it's, I mean, it's funny to joke about, but it's totally true. Like, oh, was, those were awful days. <laughs> oh yeah. Was, I mean, the snowmobiles just sucked. Back then too, and we got nowhere. Um, but yeah, I mean, the snowmobiling thing was pretty interesting. It was pretty wild. Like I definitely got pretty into snowmobiling for a while there. Um, and one of the reasons was, is that you could get into places so quickly and then be like, I don't want to be here. Um, so you're really making really quick decisions a lot of the time, um, which I, which was, was fun for a bit. Um, inevitably I kind of got sick of the whole noise and motor thing. Um, but yeah, I think the thing about just snowmobiling and snowmobiling in general for the film side of things, cause it's a really popular, um, side. Like when I first was filming, there, there was a lot of heli skiing going on, uh, which was great because you were always with guides. So there was always someone in charge of safety. Um, if something went wrong, you had a helicopter right there. Uh, your, your safety margins were about as high as they could be. Um, and then as we moved into snowmobile filming, which was the, the poor man's helicopter, um, we were out there by ourselves with our own program. Um, and to be totally honest, like at, at the start of it, it was loose, you know, we didn't, we were lucky enough that not too much went wrong. Um, but that was before like in reaches and, and all that. So, um, but we are very much making our own decisions and, and, uh, luckily we spent a lot of that out on the coast, um, which had the, you know, there was, there was just really conducive film terrain out there. It was small, um, relatively small mini golf. If, if you got flushed, you would kind of end up at the bottom and it wasn't too, too much going on. Um, and then it was the coast, so there just wasn't too much going on, but, uh, I, I moved to Revelstoke pretty early on and, and that was a coming from the Rockies. You're just like fearful of the whole slope going to ground. And then here, uh, we entered a, a world of surface war, um, which we had no idea about, you know, like in the Rockies, I guess you kind of feel safe in the trees. A lot of the time you're more worried about the Alpine rose here. It's like the trees can be the scariest part with the, the surface war. Um, and and the snowmobile was great for that. It, it got us around. Um, when I first here moved here, I, I remember reading the avalanche reports and they're talking about a layer and I'd go out and on my snowmobile and go dig pits all over the place and be like, find that surface or layer and, and do a column and watch it slide off, you know, um, and be like, Oh, this is what they're talking about. And it was a, it was a really big part of my learning because <clears throat> you could read what what people were professionals were talking about and then go out for yourself and, and totally see that. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it, it was great. So yeah, I, I mean the, the snowmobile to sum it all up is a great tool. It can get you in lots of trouble. Um, these days I generally put up a road with a couple people on my snowmobile and we park it at the end of the road and go ski tour and is kind of, what I found the best, best use for it. Um, 
Yeah, I think increasingly it's it's the, the noise and and to be honest, I, they're just not efficient. Um, yeah, and you you to do any sort of like sled retrievals or anything like that, you're putting a lot of time in, and for the most part, you can like put a skin track in, and then everybody's up at the top. Um, so it's a a better way to operate, and and then um, I guess I guess that's a good point is, is you don't feel the snow as much on a, a snowmobile you you can barely feel you have to be through a pretty gnarly breakable crust before you feel a crust uh whereas ski touring up it's like you feeling every step of the way and you can really feel it the change um i mean the classic example of ski touring is you, you'll go up and get to somewhere where there's a decision and the guy in front's like oh, i don't know that doesn't feel so good and the guy behind's like, oh well, let me try for a bit, you know, and because he, he hasn't been feeling the snow, and they like take two steps and like, oh, this doesn't feel good, you know. So it's yeah, <laughs> you you know, you have that, you have such a, you gain so much knowledge on the way up, um, and and just feeling what's going on and all the the above. Yeah, and I think also the pace, right? You know, when you're you're ski touring. You're not whizzing through terrain so quickly. I mean, that's the one thing. Like, it's a blessing and a curse having that that horsepower to be able to move through terrain quickly to get information. But at the same time, you you may be moving through the terrain so quickly that you might miss something. Um, but yeah, no, that's 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 really interesting. I'm always curious of how pro skiers. You know, some have really glommed on to snowmobiling. Some haven't and it, and it's it's uh yeah i'm always curious to see and i knew that it was a big part of of filming as the cost of helicopters has increased and the the big thing i've experienced where i think you know my group of friends and myself we've all been lucky is you know when we're trying to get out to these places is using that snowmobile has its own inherent risks in itself right you know crashing and and you know people getting hurt on the sled you know before you even get to the goods no, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, I like it now. I mean, the one thing that's nice is like same as a helicopter is like if I do go sledding now, I have a big kit on the back, you know, that I'm not going to, you know, when you're ski touring, you have to pare down your kit. You're, you're, you don't have the kitchen sink with you. Yeah. And um, that's just the reality of it. And, uh, but I think it's nice uh, to have like a good solid kit at the sled that's like, reachable um which is a nice little like safety net i think um especially especially for filming you know like a, a sleeping bag and some pads if someone gets hurt so let's talk about how do you guys go about choosing an area and then making the decisions on when it's going to be good filming but also good avalanche conditions like how are those decisions made for you guys do you guys do that on your own or do you guys sometimes employ guides to help make those decisions yeah i mean every <clears throat> with that stuff every every trip is different i think one of the reasons kind of why i've done really well like st still being a professional skier for this long is uh, i did a lot of trips where it was travel based um so you go somewhere for two weeks and uh these are normally highly expensive that a sponsor has dished out a lot of money for. And so you're, there is an expectation that you come back with something um, to some degree. I mean, like to be clear, there, there's never any pressure from sponsors or anything like that. But um, overall, like people are paying a lot of money. They're hoping for something. And so I've always been very good at like um, 
looking at the forecasts, like the known forecasts around and being like, what can we do today? Um, instead of like, let's go and get the gnarliest line. And like, yeah. of course that's, that's always like what you want. Um, and, uh, so like every trip's a little bit different. You, you might have a zone picked out. Uh, you might fly in a camp, you might be, um, out of town snowmobiling every day. Um, but generally it seems like we're like in, in zones or whatever for, you know, two weeks. Um, and, and so you pick out the zone, like, uh, a lot of times I'll be Google earthing and, and searching these zones and kind of figure out when, when ish would be best to go there. And, and then we base the trip around it. And then as the trip comes closer and closer, you start following the forecast and avalanche conditions. If, if you're in a zone that, um, you have that feedback. Um, and so you just start following those more closely and then everyone comes together and then it, it's very much a, a team communication um, decision. Obviously, if you're at an operation, you're using guides, um, but you're talking with the guides about where to go and what, what you want to achieve. And um, with the in-reaches today, we get these such incredible forecasts. Like even if you're out in the middle of nowhere, like I'll, I'll call a, a friend or something to be like, Hey, can you give me updated forecasts and avalanche forecasts? And, um, but quite quickly when you're, if you're out in a zone, like at a hut or a camp or something like that, you just, you, you're out there, you're seeing every little thing, you know, you might wake up in the middle of the night and be like, Oh, it's windy. Like it wasn't supposed to be windy. Um, so you're already like, have these alarm bells going off for the morning. Like, Oh, I felt the wind last night. Like we should be worried about wind slab or, or whatever. Uh, and then, um, kind of how I like to do it these days is we'll find like a zone, like whatever it is, like a a little mini golf or like a bowl or whatever. And we'll get everyone into the bottom nice and safely. The filmers have huge packs. So you're looking for the safest, easiest way down that you wouldn't be the first filmer that's hurt themselves from skiing with these huge, it's, I mean, it's the same as doing a traverse or something. These packs are huge and um, get everyone to the bottom. And then, and then you just sit there and study it. Um, and people are kind of naturally gravitated towards their lines. Um, I really have liked to try and, you know, start with a warm up line uh, and get, get a feeling of where it's going. And, and, the, the very best trips are like, say you like come in and it storms a bunch and then you're like, okay, the avalanche conditions are sketchy. And so you like warm up on all this. Like sometimes it's one turn wonders in the trees, like, or just hitting one cliff at a time, like no, no avalanche danger at all ever. And then you just watch it change and you just slowly build. And if the conditions don't change, like, or as you don't have more inputs that get it sketchier, it gets better and better. Your confidence increases and, and, those are the trips when you get on the, the gnarly, gnarly lines, like right towards the end of the trip when you're like feeling really good about the snowpack. You've been in the area and like, it's like, all right, like I'm ready to go try these dream lines because you, you come into a zone and it's quite clear. You're like, oh, that's that's the, the cream line in the zone. Like that's, but not right now. Like I'm going to start over here and, and work my way up. And um, at, at the same time, the, the other part, um, that we're becoming like increasingly conscious of and trying to do better at is, is stacking the gnarly lines in the middle of the day. Um, when you still have time to hopefully get a helicopter out, if something goes down and, and 
and towards the end of the day, just like really tapering off and um, doing just some easy shots and, and stuff like that. So, but yeah, overall, it's just a, it's a it's a collaborative effort. Um, everybody's talking. There's for the most part with that stuff. There's not a lot of ego involved. Um, it's your own ego of like wanting to do good for yourself, but nobody, everybody is like very cognizant of the fact that if they get hurt or if someone gets hurt, that you're way out there and it's going to suck and, and the other people are going to have to deal with it. So it's just, it's a, it's a very like kind of what I've realized over the years, I've become totally addicted to that side of it. It's like working with professionals, um, working as a team and, that slow build up and, and coming out successful on the other side is uh, it's really fun. Like I, I really enjoy the whole process of it. Yeah. And I, I think, I think that shows, you know, we're not going to, we don't show the video to these conversations, but I do want to share with the listeners, like watching Chris explain their process here. I can just see the joy that he gets and the excitement that he gets. I, I'm even getting goosebumps just describing the excitement that he was just showing. And I'm sure, I don't know if you were aware that you show that excitement when you start talking about these things, but it, it's uh, it's really inspiring. And it's the same feeling I get when I start to talk about skiing. And, you know, and I think, I you know, a lot of times as skiers, that, that ego side of things does come down to our own, you know, us being hard on ourselves, right? You know, a lot of times being hard on ourselves. But anyways, that's neither here nor there. Um, I think one of the big things is, too, that I'm realizing, like, during this discussion, like, the way you guys describe how you work together, even though you're not professional ski guides and you're not, quote, unquote, professionally trained, from what you're describing here sounds so much like what happens day to day in operation, right? And you've had an opportunity to be in operation both as a professional skier and then as as a worker as well. And and you know, it's so cool to see that just naturally you guys did that, right? Like naturally you guys learned like let's start watching the weather. Let's start doing these things. Let's, you know, and that might be from the recreational training that you had leading up to that and having exposure to guides. But I do think that you know, as you progress in that backcountry world, you start to inherently do these things for survival, and 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 they're just natural. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, from the recreational side of it, that I know exactly where it started, and we always joke growing up in the Rockies is we learned so much about avalanches because you or conditions is because you wanted the best skiing. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't always about whether you're safe or not, it was like, and, and to be honest, like that's most of the time is like your priority when you go out there. I mean, it's one, one is to be safe and two is to find really good skiing. You're not searching out there for bad skiing. So you're, you want to know where the winds came from. You want to know where it snowed. You want to know how high it, it goes. So, uh, we, we've always been, we've, we've always been not snobs, but definitely like looking for the best skiing. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, I think I think we should like we're professional skiers. I, I I often wonder about this. If I mean, I don't think there needs to be a like a industry behind it, but I I do think that a professional skier should have their wilderness first aid. They should have their basic basic avalanche training. This is a professional um, um, gig out there, and, and you are you're you're 
you're risking your life a lot of the time. So it's, it's good to know um, when it's better to risk it in, in my opinion and, and be a part of that. And um, we're just so fortunate, I think, to work with guides and professionals. Um, but you really see this, it, it can really accelerate your, your learning curve. Um, if you, if you choose to like engage with them and ask them the right questions and, um, it, you know, it makes you, it makes you a better skier. It makes you a safer skier. And a lot of the times, especially when you get into line skiing, conditions are everything in the fact of knowing, or at least educated guessing of predicting what the line's going to do. You know, if, if you are looking at a big cliff and the landing doesn't look very good um, because you know, you know, cause you've looked at the snow, you're like, well, maybe I shouldn't be getting that. Um, but that, that's when you can get hurt is when you misjudge that, that snow somewhere or, or maybe it's a crucial turn that has a wind slab on it. And it, it doesn't even have to be a big avalanche. It just has to be a little avalanche to like totally change the, how that line works. And, and the, the, the beauty of, film skiing that I've realized as opposed to, you know, I, I do a lot of recreational skiing with friends and, and whatnot. And mo- most part you're ski touring up and then skiing down and, you know, you might look at your line, but for the most part, you're keeping it pretty simple. Whereas film skiing, you're just, we get to the bottom of a zone and, you know, it's a, probably an hour before you start ski touring up because you've like walked, you know, it's, I always think it'd be funny to like go to a zone after a f- film a film production's been there because there's just the weirdest tracks and the weirdest spots. And a lot of the times you're trying to f- see a different angle on a cliff and just like really dial in um, exactly how that line's going to work, where you're going to land, where you're going to do that turn, where the stuff's going to go. And the stopping in the middle of it, you, you totally ruin your shot. Um, or if you are off a little bit, you might get really hurt. So mm-hmm. just, being totally dialed on that and then executing it is like, it's, it's a very fun way to ski. <laughs> yeah. 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 No doubt. Now, so let's, so when did you become involved as an ambassador with Avalanche Canada and how is that looking for you for this season and how was it last season? Oh, this is bad. I, I don't know. I mean, it's been quite a few years now that I've worked with them. I mean, I worked with them unofficially for a long time. We, we did a event called Freshtable in Calgary, which was, um, I mean, it's still going. It's, it's a bunch of ski films, but then we started to add, um, like presentations, uh, and Avalanche Canada was sponsoring those. And then, uh, in the end, we ended up making a program with the ambassadors. And so, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to travel all over the world and see different avalanche programs and, and how it works. And the Canadian Avalanche Association is just, it's unbelievable what goes on here. I have so much respect for what they've created. Um, and and I see people that go through AST1s and watch them change. I've seen a lot of friends become guides and see how that changes them. And it's just all for the positive. Um, and so I, I really... Uh, yeah, like I said, I, I think it's been really important for me to like showcase the other side of pro skiing. 
um, through the avalanche awareness. And, and certainly like when we first started, it wasn't that cool to be knowledgeable in the back country, you know, um, <laughs> it, it wasn't, it was, kind of, you know, we kind of like shun guide guides a little bit and like, Oh, they're so safe and blah, blah, blah. And, um, I, I feel like we've really changed, uh, that perception that it's cool to get the knowledge and it's very uncool not to have the knowledge, which I think is great. Um, yeah, it's just a, it's a, a never-ending story, kind of. And I, I mean, unfortunately, unfortunately, a lot of the sharing I do is case studies of my own involvements or close calls that I've been a part of, um, which I definitely prefer to try and stop that for sure but it 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 does happen and and um i i do feel like it's very important to share those things and hopefully somebody learns from that um learns from my mistakes and um we're not we're not insulated from making mistakes out there you know i'm 20 plus years now in the backcountry and still making mistakes so it's uh yeah it's not perfect Oh, that's, that's awesome. So how are you finding like these transitions into social media? You know, as we're getting older, it's probably harder and harder to keep up. Not trying, I'm not trying to, to, you know, point out your age or anything, Chris. I'm speaking for myself. Yeah, well, I got, I got lots of grades in my beard. Don't worry. Um, like, how are you finding it? How is that for outreach? Do you find that that is the, the, the most effective method to to deliver the message as a pro skier, to try to influence people and uh, encourage people to take training and and operate in a positive way based on, on your posts and then also by sharing your stories. Yeah, I mean, I think I, social media has its positives and negatives as we've all known, but I, I think that sharing avalanche education is like a huge positive, especially for like in the now conditions. Um, like you take last year, for example, when we were dealing with a serious PWL in this part of the world. Um, like I took the opportunity to share my mindset of what's going on out there. Uh, and hopefully it resonates with people. You know, I, I you know, you, you start the season, you can start the season. Now you start daydreaming about all the things you want to do and all the rad lines you want to get on. And, and that's dictated by the weather. You can daydream and fantasize all you want, but mother nature has the, the end uh, say in all of that. So, yeah, I, I do think that social media has a big um, part to play in that. I, I mean, I know like with the men, stuff with uh avalanche canada like it's great to just check out conditions like like especially if you have a rain or wind event you get these like real-time condition reports and it helps you find good skiing uh like kind of like i said it's like it's it's partly avalanche conditions partly good skiing so yeah i mean i think overall social media is a great one uh avalanche canada did the the webinars over the um the pandemic which i really enjoyed uh, I think, as we all know, Zoom's maybe not the greatest way to communicate with humans, but it's also a pretty good way. Um, and they were very largely attended. Like I did a lot of them for different companies, um, and the Avalanche Canada ones had some of the, the best attendance going. So I think people are hungry for that information. And then 
you know, in the fall, they do a series of uh, in-person nights. Uh, and like in Revelstoke, we have a staying alive night and uh, a bunch of different ones. And, and those are really fun. You know, you get a lot like people like myself or uh, other Avalanche professionals kind of sharing their little insights. And I think those are really good. And, and a lot of it, you know, <clears throat> a lot of the, the, the other part of it is you'll get like a Facebook group. Like we have Revelstoke, Revelstoke ski tours here and they help you find partners if you're not like if you're if you're like a, a single person or or just don't have enough ski partners it, it helps you connect that way and, and so do those events you know and that's a that's such a huge part of it is finding like-minded partners in this in this game where you're like it's very often from what i see is like your risk tolerances are the same like the group that I grew up that I was mentioning earlier, a lot of the times we barely need to talk out there. You know, we just, we're all on the same page. We, we're, our risk tolerances are very similar and uh, the decision-making has always kind of been easy. Whereas if you have someone that has a really high risk tolerance and a really low risk tolerance, it's hard to meet in, uh, in the middle there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, speaking of risk tolerance and, and speaking of, um, you know, some of the experiences that you have, I know for myself, you know, you're saying, Oh, I'd like to share my experiences from perhaps choices where I've, you know, where I've come out unscathed from something. And I know for myself, I had one of those moments about four years ago now, um, almost five where, you know, I, I triggered a size two and a half skied out of it. And it was at that point, uh, my youngest son was six months old. And it was at that point that I, I, uh, well, A, I wanted to leave immediately um, and go home and hug my family. Um, but I I made a conscious choice that day that that was going to be the last day I come home to my wife and say, I skied out of an avalanche today. Now, I think that's an unrealistic goal considering the path that I've now chosen. But I do know from a recreationist standpoint that that was a lesson that was learned by me. And, and even though I already had two kids... I was trying to make a conscious choice of changing my risk tolerance. And so that kind of brings into, into uh, the forefront the question I have for you is now being a new father and a professional skier, how do you find that's affecting your risk tolerance? Yeah, no, it's an interesting, interesting um, take, you know, it's, uh, you know, I was good friends with, Dave Treadway, um, who passed away a bunch of years ago and left behind a family. And it's, I mean, you're fine. You're dead. It's, it's, it's not, uh, it's not on you. It's what you leave behind. Um, when we first found out we were pregnant, that was what was going through my head for the first probably two months was like, Oh, how, how does this feel? You know, like I would just go out and ask myself, like, are my risk tolerances changed? And, like, how do I feel about all this? And, and basically, for me, I mean, I'm getting older now. I just turned 39 uh, at the time. I would have been 37, I guess. Um, and my risk tolerance was, was going down um, to begin with. Uh, it had been on a sliding scale going down. And uh, that was largely a big event that happened to me was, um, oh, I guess it was 2016. Uh, 
I was on the fresh fields. Uh, we were just doing a camp up there, had a bit of filming going on, but nothing like too serious. It was mostly a friend's trip. And, uh, we had, we, we flew in the day before we skied a bunch of like warm up lines and, and I had been in the area for months, felt really good about the snowpack. And the next day we went in to ski an objective, like a pretty full on, like very steep, like kind of Alaska style spines. And we got to the bottom and we were too late. It was like, got to the bottom of it. And we're like, we're, there's no way we're going up there right now. And so it was really easy decision-making. And so we're kind of like flailing around trying to figure out stuff to do and did a couple of like artsy shots and then walked into a different valley and uh, turned out like <clears throat> half the group wanted to go up a, a mountain, Mount Freshfield. And, and then uh, Eric and I were like, oh, we can go up to this like super mellow headwall and um, do a, like, there was an artsy shot and literally we could have ski toured around the right side of it, no problem. But it was like we were not thinking about avalanches that day. Like it was that stable, and we started boot packing up the the face. And he was up up front and kind of got into um, some rocks, like random rocks. And he was, you know, ten feet ahead of me, and I kept walking up his boot pack and got within five feet of him. And I think it was about one step triggered a huge slide. I think it was, yeah, we're on a two and a half with our skis on our back um, and went for a huge ride, like <clears throat> over a birch run, everything. And luckily, in, we were like on top, like everything. I mean, he was he was banged up, uh, like a little bit of a knee, and but we were able to find most of our gear, enough to get us back to camp, and like we were totally okay. But the the crazy thing you know like if, if you have an accident where there's like these things that you obviously did wrong and, and for sure there's a you know we could have skeetered around the side of it but i know exactly how i felt that day i, I was not thinking about avalanches we, it was like we had called ourselves off something far more gnarly than this like mellow slope um and it was one of those you know you can be the smartest avalanche person in the world and you're still you're still rolling the dice out there. And so it was a really, it, it took me a, a long time to like grapple with that in my head of, you know, you, you do the same thing. You, you want to go home and you're like, ah, oh, I just, do I quit? Like, what do I do? Like, that's stupid. And, um, there was a lot of guilt involved. I found from telling people that I'm being really safe out there and then feeling like, well, I'm obviously not being that safe. I just like got in this, um, avalanche and, uh, so yeah, overall, but I, I really felt like I had to like grapple or like understand the fact of why I do this and, and how I do this and my risk tolerances. And, and to me, it just, it made me want to be more vigilant on how I operate out there. Um, but yeah, but back to the, the original question of like, whether my risk tolerances changed as the father, it, it, it hasn't, you know, I, I felt like I had come over the years, I'd come to a place where I, had, I, I'm not going to give up backcountry skiing. I mean, that's the best way to get take the risk out. Uh, I, I, I wasn't. I, I love backcountry skiing. It's who I am. It's how I live. Um, but I've, for me, I found a, a risk tolerance that's acceptable, and that, and that the only person um, that can really control that is yourself. You know, so 
you find a risk on to and then but also being like hyper cognizant of the fact of the consequences out there i, I think that's more than anything and, and a lot of of what i preach these days is like is the consequences um because i think i think a lot of people are out there that really have the like they all it won't happen to me um sort of attitude and 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 i know i've been guilty of that for sure you know you're, you're like oh well I'm, i know more or whatever but it, it doesn't it just doesn't matter and, and those risks are real and, and that that is what makes it fun um unfortunately yeah but there are risks <laughs> um yeah and 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 the challenge of learning of how to make those risks uh less and then and grappling with it but but at the same token, I, I am excited for my son to see what I do. I'm excited to teach him more about it and try and teach him how to do it safely. Because I know, or I don't know, but I the apple never falls too far from the tree. So <laughs> I can see it. I can see it already that he's probably going to be pretty excited about skiing. So perfect. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's and, a good and, thing. And, and yeah, I mean, I mean, overall the 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 positives of it far outweigh the negatives of it but i i've seen i mean i've been fortunate enough to be not part of a fatality or anything like that but i've been around it and it's it it's horrible you can't understate uh consequences and emotions that that happen that it, it ruins people so um I, I just never i guess i never i never want to have an accident where i'm like oh, i fucked up like we made I, I guess I should. No, no, you can I swear. screwed it's up. Fine. Yeah, no, it's fine. <laughs> okay, it's yeah. a podcast. Yeah. There's, there's no it's kids podcast, listening to yeah. this. <laughs> yeah, perfect. No, but I, I just never want to say that I like have these like blaringly obvious um, decision making factors that it was a screw up. You know, if, if something happens and it's like, I mean, obviously there is a screw up involved, but I, I don't want it to be like, you know, like this glaringly obvious red flag that we missed um so i i would say more than anything the the having a son or or any of that stuff is uh just being hyper hyper aware of your surroundings and being super dialed and Mm -hmm. um I mean, there's definitely a couple times I had this year where I was standing on top of a line and being like, what am I doing? Like, this is stupid. Like, you, don't, you don't need to be doing this anymore. Um, and, and calling myself off of that line and being like, oh, I'm just going to risk you this. Like, yeah. Not, yeah, like uh, there's definitely the tolerances of doing something dumb. Is, is, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. as you get older, you, you see the risks and rewards and, and what you need to do. and and uh you can kind of gauge on that but do you find that uh some of the young lads that you're skiing with these days do they give you a hard time if you call off a line do they or do they are they inquisitive as to what your decision making was on on you know choosing not to to move ahead yeah so i mean i i uh i I just recently like switched all my sponsors so i'm kind of in, in a new crew last year and then but previous to that i was with the, the Solomon guys and we were working with the blank collective crew and it was, it was awesome. We had been there, been as a group together, like working hard for four or five years and we just had it. Um, and I, I like to think that I play like a leadership role in the conditions. I'm definitely the most experienced and, and 
but we got it to a point where we're all working together and we understood and they saw that over the years, they saw the value of, of how you operate like that um, and the safety side. And, and we had, we had some accidents. We had Stan hurt himself um, with a knee and the, the rescues that we were doing were uh, total pro rescues. And with Solomon, we were doing safety days together. And so I think that, yeah, I think that the, like I said, I think it's cool now to like have that knowledge and, and all of, all it takes to be in one incident or around one incident and realize that you, when you see like professionals working, uh, you, you're kind of in awe and you want to be that person. It's like, it's hard not to like see that because you're taking this like crazy situation and it's like the people that are good at it. It's like calm, it's collective uh, and it happens super efficient. And it, it's, uh, it's, I, I was going to say it's fun to watch. It's not fun to watch, but it's definitely inspiring, um, to see someone that's really good at that and, and taking a difficult situation and, and making it seem much more tangible. And, and Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, when you talk about those types of things, you know, I will say, you know, you, you hope that people learn from your experiences and I'll tell you for myself, I utilize your film, your film with Noah Morrison, in my AST1 courses because of how efficient and how accurate that rescue is from your perspective. And, um, you know, I, I, I love that type of stuff. And I think that the industry making a move to start to show those types of things and the training that you guys do. So those professional days that Solomon would put on, or if Atomic is going to be doing something similar, you know, like, I think that's important to showcase those things to up and comers um, you know, coming from a freestyle background, I know how these kids think when they come from Ontario or where they come from Quebec out West, right? They, they still think it's the terrain park. And I think it's important when they get to see some of their mentors like yourself and, and even stand for that matter, you know, like shit does happen. And that's when, that's when our real work as professionals starts, even as an athlete is because we're out there, but we're out there as a team. And we're out there to work together. And the only way to do that efficiently is through practice and training. And I think sometimes trying to deliver that message to new students in AST is like, you know, Chris didn't get efficient on this because he watched one video and then went out and shred it. Yeah. Right? No, <laughs> not, in, not even two videos. <laughs> no, and I mean, for me, I mean, I've been lucky. And I, I mean, I have a skewed sense um of the professional side because pretty much everybody i ski with when i'm at home recreationally are guides and that the the and i'm surrounded myself i work up at the blanket as a coach with marty and Tatao and um as like i'm not a guide but i'm working with guide and we're guiding clients and um all that and and that has become my standard is the i'm not an acmg guide but that is to me is like that's where i need my expertise to be um so so it's certainly like a bit skewed i'm not most professional skiers are not not at that level for sure um but but it it's just i i've seen so many people go through it i've seen the benefits of it and i'm like i i you know you, you're like i said you're with you're in a couple of rescues and you see the the good guys work and you're like, this is how I need to operate. Um, 
Because it, you know, the the every second matters when something happens. You know, the, there's one there's one thing about getting in an avalanche. It can be a knee tweak. It can be anything. It's like knowing how how to get that person out of there. And, um, it it can be a terrible terrible cold night out there, and and an experience that you'll never forget for all the wrong reasons, or it can be an experience that you. Um, never forget for better reasons. Yeah. Now, what is one tool you carry in your backpack when you're ski touring? And I don't mean like your normal stuff, but one specific thing that you carry. Like for me, it's, you know, I have a spare pair of gloves, you know, a nice pair of mitts that I like to put on at lunchtime. <laughs> yeah. What's one tool? I mean, that I'm going to say, I'm, I'm going to say two. Um, the obvious, or it's not the obvious one, and that's why I'm going to say it, but is a saw. And I feel like it gets, when we talk about avalanche education, it's always the beacon, the probe, and the shovel. And we rarely talk about the saw, which I never understood. Because if you're, if you're digging a pit, you need a saw. Like, it's the only way. So I've never understood that. And in the rescues that I've been a part of, a good, competent wood saw is been crucial for cutting a helipad landing if you're ever going to spend the night out um making that fire like a good wood saw can really um save your butt and oh uh, <laughs> i was gonna, I'm gonna okay i gotta do three because because i i just thought of the the third one the the second one is heli heli ski straps so like your valet straps um to be honest my repair kit at this point has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller and just been replaced with LED straps. Every time something breaks, I can fix it with that. And there's the, your capacity of fixing something in the field is pretty limited to begin with. I mean, I fixed a broken a arm on a sled with ski straps. So I was pretty stoked. Yeah, totally. No, no, it's, <laughs> right? it's like... crazy. It's I've, I've strapped people's feet in that broke their bindings, poles, like all sorts of things. So there's such a useful tool. Uh, and then, and then the third one, and we actually had an incident this year where we didn't have it is a, is a tarp, uh, like a toboggan, a toboggan tarp, which I actually, I've, I've got to the point now where the, this is also another thing is like the first aid kit. Um, everyone brings a first aid kit. I so rarely use the first aid kit, like other than blisters, you know, it's, it's for the most part, it's knees, it's it's something kind of serious that you're, you're splinting. Um, so, so you need your splints for sure, but not like your band-aids and stuff like that. It's like not that big. And then what I've realized is almost everybody has a first aid kit in their bag. And so what I've been bringing is a, is an Alpine Threadworks card. And they are just, we, we tried to move someone last year without one. And it, it was just a nightmare. And then luckily there was a group there that had one. We're like, yes, we will use this. We loaded them in and it was just so simple. It keeps them warm. I've, I've used it quite a few times and it, it really is like, it is a huge, huge difference. It will still totally save your life. Um, just And moving someone to a helipad that's 200 meters away is like in deep snow is a lot of work. And so uh, you're, you're not, you're not like tobogganing someone down a hill. That's for sure. But you can move them to a better spot or 
and then once you get them to that spot you can make a fire but i i really that those tarps are incredible yeah i picked one up last year and and um yeah game changer game changer i used it in a rescue and operations once uh, this season and and yeah i mean <clears throat> it it just packs down so light it's so versatile it it's i couldn't imagine trying to fabricate one in the field using clothing and straps and whatever the hell else you yeah, can you, find right you, you basically you you basically if you don't have an alpine bedworks tarp you better have holes in your tips and tails um that's the that's the only way you're going to get your skis to like become a toboggan um and, and it's really difficult but the 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 other thing about that is like every rescue i've been a part of doesn't matter what the injury is or what the incident is they get so cold so quickly it's it's always the biggest thing and wrapping them in those tarps it's it's a hypo wrap um and it, it instantly instantly helps them uh, it's a big deal but but yeah all, all the all those three things I, I mean a lot of people talk about having tools that are um that do multiple things you know and those are all three tools that um are very multitasked and that, that's kind of what you want in a, in a bag yeah yeah Very exactly long. right on nice yeah. now i mean that pretty much wraps it up how about you give us a plug for your new sponsors i know you switched over from your long-standing sponsor solomon and over to atomic last season and uh you, you want to give them a plug and and uh say where we can find you on social media and uh and then we'll we'll shut her down here yeah so um a few plugs to the sponsors here atomic uh Pretty excited to be working with them, working on with them on a new Backland 109 ski, which I'm very excited about. Ski touring, free ride ski, I'm very excited about that. And then picture clothing, organic. Uh, also super excited to be in some outerwear that's more environmentally friendly and kind of living that dream. And then Avalanche Canada, obviously, uh, love that that whole scene over there. And thanks for letting me be a part of your your crew and really enjoy uh, everything you do. And uh, yeah, thanks for you and this great conversation. Yeah, thanks for taking the time, Chris. I'll let you get back to being a dad and a farmer and all those things that you do in the summertime. And now that it's cooler, dreaming about skiing like the rest of us ski bums. Um, but <laughs> I, I, I super appreciate you taking the time, man. And, and uh, yeah, thank you so much. Hearing about Chris's experience as he worked his way through the mountain scene from a young age showcases the importance of time in the mountains. Having riders like Chris showcase their decision-making with videos, social media posts, and outreach, I feel that it's had a positive effect on backcountry users. I know I use his videos in my avalanche courses, and that seems to really resonate with my students. I'm so grateful to Chris for taking the time to share his experience with us. Music in this episode is provided by Gravy with the soundtrack Shabaduba from the album Mountains, Valleys, Places Between. You can find his tracks at gravytunes.bandcamp.com. Big shout out to the designer of our sweet logo, Mike T. You can see more of Mike's work over at MikeT.com. That's like the tea you drink, MikeT.com. If you want to stay up to date, have a chance to ask a question, or just have a link into the conversation, follow us on Instagram or Facebook at 
the Avalanche Hour podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Things are looking pretty quiet over there. Why don't you tell us how we're doing? Or if you have any direct feedback, you can send it to the Avalanche Hour podcast at gmail.com. Thank you all for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode in the new year. Be safe and have fun.